Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. In late 2013, many of Northeast Ohio's leading institutions gathered for a day-long summit in an effort to find solutions to the region's heroin epidemic. A community action plan was formulated over the course of multiple planning meetings and finalized after the summit. The purpose of this document was to serve as kind of a master plan as we move forward to address the epidemic here in Northeast Ohio. Since then, several important steps have been achieved, thanks in part to the efforts of what came to be known as the U.S. Attorney's Task Force on Heroin and Opioids. Narcan is more readily available, and its use is much more widely accepted. The region's largest hospital systems have come together to work collaboratively to educate doctors and change prescribing practices. Law enforcement has embraced new protocols and techniques that have resulted in long prison sentences for drug traffickers and indictments of individuals across the globe. Hundreds of community meetings combined with multimedia public awareness campaigns have informed virtually everyone in Northeast Ohio that this is a crisis in our own backyard and it affects friends, neighbors, relatives, virtually all of us. On September 6, 2018, the group reconvened to review progress and update the action plan. The conference included four panels where leaders shared their progress. This is the second of our two-part series on the conference. We begin part two of our two-part series with an introduction to the Northeast Ohio Hospital Consortium by Dr. Randy Jernisek from University Hospitals. Cleveland has such a long tradition of really leading the way and doing remarkable work um, throughout history to face epidemics, and we are in our worst epidemic. As uh, in the role that I have today as the uh, chair, I hear frequently from folks around the country, um, which sometimes is really just great to hear that you are doing very innovative work, and we have not been able to find another consortium that is uh, similar to what we've done, where all the healthcare systems in one area come together to work. And so we get a lot of calls and emails asking us about the consortium. What is it? What are you really doing? What does it mean? What are the troubles? What are the difficulties you're facing? And so I'd like to briefly touch on a few of those because I think they're, they're really important. And what you've heard is each one of these folks represent an amazing amount of work being done at their institutions. But how do we then bring that together in a time when we don't always, you know, market share be what it is, we don't always do that. But it's just phenomenal to see how this works. Next, Dr. Papp shares the keys to their success. Not only do we have a number of leaders here at the table, but all of us go back to our own institutions and we work with our leadership teams. Um, I think it really speaks uh, well of UH that they have the chief medical officer leading this effort. At Metro Health, we, we meet with our opioid executive team every week to increase access to um, people who can make decisions, stakeholders, individuals who can allow us to, to do our work and do it quickly. You know, it's one thing to have great ideas and to have people who are motivated and, and eager to do good work. But if you don't have the access to the leaders, you don't have access to your um, executive team, you don't have that, that 
ability to be nimble and to move quickly and to um, implement programs. And so that's one of the benefits that a team like this has and one of the, the benefits um, that each of us can, can work with in our own uh, institutions is, is having access to your, to your leaders, um, getting early buy-in from your from the top um, executives in your hospital so that you can really make those changes, implement programs quickly, and, and make a difference as soon as you see that the landscape is changing. Next, Dr. Jean LeCamp from University Hospitals introduces us to the Pain Management Institute. At University Hospitals, we've created a Pain Management Institute, and that's a really exciting, new, and innovative program, and I have to thank several of my colleagues in the audience, as well as Ted, who've been partnering with us uh, even as recently as a few weeks ago when we had our first conference for our primary care physicians who are interested in learning more about pain management. We go beyond just reducing opioids, which is fairly low-hanging but very important fruit, um, and we go for a multidisciplinary uh, in engagement. Uh, various departments are already engaged with us, certainly psychiatry, uh, from the behavioral health standpoint. Uh, for not only the addiction element of opioid use and opioid use disorders, but also for people who suffer with pain, how that does impact their full functioning. And wanting to maximize functioning and minimize risk for our patients is extremely important. And then how do we engender cooperation and participation not only with our providers, but across the city? Uh, we have Connor Integrative Health Network, which I'm hopeful that you're aware of. Um, they are hosting an integrative medicine conference even next week that's open to all for people to learn a little bit more about pain management so that we can move the needle eventually um, once we can stop the bleeding regarding the opioid uh, crisis and deaths related to this. We have to move backwards and determine where can we start our patients in a healthier framework and a healthier uh, overall plan for their pain management. So I think that's something that we've done at University Hospitals that's been very exciting, and we hope to really have that trickle-down effect across the consortium. Next, Dr. Kevin Smith talks about their program to extend education beyond prescribers. The uh, executive leadership board recognized early on that while all the prescribers at each of the hospitals were being trained on opioids, there was uh, an absence of that for the most part for nursing. And so the education group came together um, basically uh, with a plan to try to rectify that. So facility uh, champions were identified at each of the member hospitals with a goal of each of those champions to obtain facility leadership and support for the recommendations that were going to come out of that group. Um, there was uh, an also an understanding that we needed to look at this in a continuum of care. So we were going to be training nursing staff who were in emergency departments, acute care, ambulatory care, and primary care, and that the training needed to be tailored to those different areas. Um, based on that, there was the development of a four-module, five-hour training that's just about completed. Um, and this training is going to be rolled out. Um, a couple things that needed to be included with that was the idea that there needed to be an integration plan that basically explained in some detail how this could be incorporated into the practice at each of the member hospitals um, and in addition the idea that um, this training was going to have to be expanded beyond nursing staff and was also going to have to be provided to other licensed clinical staff support clinical staff and even non-clinical staff and administrative staff um, the, the concept is that there are lots of patients staff and physicians that flow throughout our region in the hospitals. Um, this education platform that we have 
is going to provide a common message that would be espoused at each of the member hospitals in Northeast Ohio. During the conference, many innovative ideas were discussed, some that are already in play, and others that were just imagined. We hear from Dr. Ted Perrin from St. Vincent Charity Hospital. Wouldn't it be amazing if, uh, if a patient received naloxone in the field, that patient's ORS report uh, could be identified, and all of the prescribers who show up on that ORS report could receive a notification that that patient was in naloxone state of the field. I think that I, beyond the concept of drug courts, which has just blown me away over the last decade or decade and a half as it's really come into fruition, that would, uh, that would make me think I died in my head. <laughs> but we don't want that lead you around still. So, thank you. you know, you never know what you're going to get when you get seven physicians up on the, on the stage, but I know what we're going to get with seven physicians at the consortium. We're going to get some great outcomes. Judge Mattia weighs in on what makes the drug court program work. It's great to be here. And one of the reasons it's really great to be here is there's a sense of community in this room. I've worked with so many people here. It's, uh, it's like a reunion. And that's... That's our strength in Northern Ohio. We don't have a county sheriff that comes out against uh, Narcan people. We don't have a county prosecutor that's trying to kill a needle exchange program. We have people collaborating and working together uh, on this pro- problem, this massive public health epidemic, and uh, we have come up a long way. Next, Judge Mattio weighs in on Issue 1 and its potential impact on drug courts. Issue 1 will make possession of fentanyl, and uh, LSD and you know, 49 unit doses of cocaine, a misdemeanor. So Judge Sinnenberg and I will no longer have jurisdiction over those cases. Uh, they will be in municipal court, and uh, there is only one municipal court in, in our county now with a drug court, that's Judge Moore Moore's Court in Cleveland Media Court. Uh, we will be destroying our drug court infrastructure should issue one pass. Lisa Fair from Circle Health talks about the importance of meeting people where they're at. I have clients from all walks of life and a, a lot of the times people have a schedule when they come in to exchange syringes. There are a lot of people that work. Um, we offer um, our services from 9 o'clock in the morning until 7 o'clock in the evening. And so people can either go to the van, um, which is located on West 25th, or they can come inside of the clinic, which is at Circle Health Services on East 20, 122nd and Euclid. So um, when people come in to exchange syringes, we get an opportunity to talk to them every day. And a lot of times these people only get an opportunity to really be themselves when they're talking to us. Um, they get a hug from us, maybe. They can talk about their families. Um, I have lots of clients who I've met as couples. And now one of the couple, um, one of the team is deceased and died of an overdose. So the other person continues to come. Um, I have lots of young ladies who were gangly employed, who had meaningful relationships and now they're sex workers. Um, I don't treat them any differently. Me or my team treat them any differently. We embrace them, we talk to them, we understand that this is a process. But each time they come in, we have services to offer them. We have compassion, and we also have a list of services that they can access. Um, they can go to uh, over and talk to one of our counselors. We can try to get them into a methadone treatment program. We have um, um, all kinds of services, wound care from a nurse, um, different things that maybe they're not willing or ready to go into treatment at that particular time, but we're always engaging them. 
And I've had many success stories where people come to me one day and say, you know, I'm tired of this. I'm really ready to go into treatment now. And I stop what I'm doing and I go into my office and I call many of you out there I've spoken to. And we work together to try to get people into treatment. And as people have mentioned um, during the course of the day, a lot of times when people have opioid addictions, it takes more than one time. And so people need to have uh, a place where they feel safe and they're not being judged. So we don't. We don't make people feel bad. We meet people at the point of their need. And so um, it's really important, I think, that all of us here keep making an effort because tomorrow somebody else is going to die. But maybe the next day somebody won't die because we all heard each other's stories. And you guys can call me or I can call you. Next, Judge Mattia makes the case for medication-assisted treatment and Vivitrol. First people through drug court, we didn't do anything other than 12-step you know, meetings and meet with your counselor. And then uh, I got a chance to go see uh, Dr. Jason Jerry speak, and he, he talked about uh, you know how effective medication-assisted treatment was, and how how the outcomes uh, were so much better uh, for those who used MAT versus those who used you know traditional absence-based programs. So he really opened my eyes to that. And uh, then Vivitrol came on the scene. And uh, we had all these uh, other judges from around the state talking about how it was this miracle drug, and uh, you know nobody ever relapsed on it. And frankly, uh, my middle name is Thomas for a reason. I'm a little skeptical. And we have Jan, the uh, Vivitrol rep in the back of the room from Alchemies. Hi, Jan. Um, and uh, Vivitrol, though, for us, was really the uh, the only game in town. We did uh, use naltrexone in the pill form for a while, but you know today. Uh, you want to relapse, well, you just don't take the pill that day. So it wasn't really effective. Next, we hear about another innovative program from Tom Olmstead from St. Vincent Charity. The patients that we serve, for the most part, are poor. Uh, so their daily lives consist of how can I maintain my housing? How can I make sure that I get my Medicaid check? Uh, how can I make sure that my utilities are turned, aren't turned off? Uh, and um, all of that contributes to their overall health. Uh, the literature supports that. And so uh, we decided back in October that we were going to establish a medical legal partnership with Legal Aid, where we would embed two attorneys in the hospital that would deal with our addiction patients and our behavioral health patients in non-criminal legal needs and provide service to overcome those challenges. Uh, since October, we've had uh, and we've trained, we've done a, an extensive amount of training internally at the hospital so that our caregivers can identify patients that have those challenges and then refer them to our attorneys that live at the hospital four days a week. Um, and uh, since October, we've had well over 100 referrals uh, for people who have had uh, or perceived, think that they have these legal issues. Many of them are around, how can I get my family back? I haven't seen my children. I'm losing my house. So all of those things are, are really critical, but one of them stands out. Uh, a recent one stands out to us, and, and, um, and uh, one of my colleagues mentioned it here. Uh, we had a patient uh, who had a challenge uh, with the courts, and our attorneys were able to expunge four convictions so that that person could then go out and get a job, and in fact, she did get that job. After the break, we'll hear from Lisa Fair from Circle Health about the threat of disease coming to Northeast Ohio. 
This Cover 2 podcast is sponsored by Relink.org. Relink.org is an online research tool that allows you to quickly locate addiction recovery and reentry resources in your area. It includes everything from treatment to housing and employment. Go to Relink.org today to find services or add a resource for free. With Relink.org, help is just three clicks away. I think we all know that some communities in Ohio reject the staples of harm reduction, such as needle exchange or the widespread distribution and use of Narcan. We begin the second half of this episode with a discussion on that topic with Lisa Fair from Circle Health Services in Cleveland. Now it's going to come back. We don't see it yet, but in like three or four years, there's going to be a spike in, in H positive HIV results because people are sharing needles. There's another thing about treatment and and leakage to care as far as um, infectious disease is concerned. If a person is getting high every day, they're not going to take the time out, first of all, to come get an HIV test. So one of the things that we do on the band and inside the clinic as well, we have certain times of year where we almost make people get an HIV test. When we have a Catholic audience, um, they don't have to get the test, but in their minds they're thinking maybe if I don't take this test, I won't get my clean needles. So they take the test. And like I said, we haven't had any HIV um, positive results within our demographic of people that we deal with. But clearly that's not happening in Southern Ohio. These people in Southern Ohio don't have access to a syringe exchange program. So, and they found out that most of the HIV positive results are coming from people in the intravenous drug community. We really need to take a look at this and we really need to be ready to address this issue when it transpires. Next, we hear more from Judge Mattia on the efficacy of drug court. So I think we got a little better in treating people, but of those 249 through, uh, 12 months after they were done, whether they were kicked out or whether they graduated, only 8.4% had been rearrested. We did a control group. The control group's rearrest rate was 27%. So um, as far as getting a bang for its buck, you know, drug court, the, the national Research is clear, drug courts do work. Uh, you know, for every dollar invested in drug court, you return to the community anywhere from two to nine dollars, depending on the study. And uh, I'm not sure that includes uh, you know the next generation savings too. You know, people who graduate from drug court raise their kids. Those kids are less likely to end up in the system for any manner whatsoever, and the savings are exponential after that. A theme that resonated throughout this conference was how important collaboration was. I think that was best summed up in my discussion with Mike Tobin. It's it's crucial. It's it's what this it's what this is all about. Um, you know, five years ago, uh, what I knew about heroin was Lou Reed and Keith Richards and, and rock musicians. I, I didn't. Heroin was was some old drug. It was I, I didn't understand. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what we've what we learned when we saw the surge in deaths from like forty to two hundred and. Now we look back longingly on only 200. Um, is that it's it's a law enforcement problem, but not just a law enforcement problem. It's a healthcare problem, but not just a healthcare problem. It's a treatment or lack of treatment problem, but beyond that, that, that this is so multifaceted and, and so interconnected that the only way we're going to move the needle on this is by all working together. Uh, and while there has been tremendous work done in the last five years, it's not lost on anybody in my office. It's not lost on anybody in this room. I think the deaths have not gone down. Um, now they could they could be higher. They, I think they would be higher, but for the efforts of a lot of people. But but there is still so much to do. There there are so many uh, families who have been touched by this. 
um, that that cooperation and collaboration is 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 the only way um, we're going to put a put a dent in this thing. Final thoughts, Mike. Uh, I guess I, I, today does make me sort of look back, um, and I wouldn't call it success, but it, it is interesting to me how far we've come collectively. Five years ago. Um, schools would still say to us, well, we, we don't really have that problem here. If you want to come talk about weed and beer, that's fine, but we don't have heroin here or opioids. Um, people um, were just willing to take what, whatever their, their, their doctor gave them without challenging it. Medically-assisted treatment was uh, very controversial. Uh, I think it's much less so now. Narcan was very controversial. Now I don't, I don't hear any opposition to it. In fact, the president just said we need more of it. So. Um, I think collectively, uh, we as a as a community, as a state, as a nation, have done a better job of understanding this. And I think, um, sadly, it's because we've all been touched by it in one way or another um, that you can't ignore it. Um, so there is a ton of work that remains to be done, uh, but we I feel like we are making progress. Next, Justin Herdman shares his final thoughts on the conference. I think the number one thing as I as I walk out of the room uh, here, having completed the morning session, is that uh, I'm very proud of the way that the community here in Cleveland and Northeast Ohio has come together on this. Um, I think that we are very lucky to have people who may not agree on everything, um, but are willing to set aside those areas where they disagree in order to come up with some common agreed upon approach to try to deal with this crisis. In those sessions, you really did get a sense for unity, didn't you? I, yes, and, it, and, it, and I have to say, it's not, it's not that, that is not the way that it is everywhere. And I, and I, um, that, that is, I think the, the overwhelming sense that I have is, is frankly a little bit of relief uh, for me as a U.S. attorney that that is already in place and that you've got people who have worked together now for five years. Uh, and, and yeah, we will identify areas where we haven't been as successful as we would have liked to have been. Um, but the fact that we can sit together five years on, that people are still willing to share the podium and the dais with each other, that people are still willing to talk to each other and work through our differences towards a common objective. Uh, is, is actually, it's, it's inspiring, I think is the best way to put it. So what are some of the highlights and maybe specific programs that you'd like to uh, put a spotlight on over the last five years that mm -hmm. the group has achieved that you think these are things of note that other communities should take note of? Yeah. Well, it, to the extent that other communities have not considered a program like Project Dawn, I'd say that is a, um, a, a very obvious place to start because it deals with that most acute need for the person who is experiencing an overdose to give them another chance. And uh, it may not happen um, that first time, it may not happen the second time, but, but uh, someone said today, uh, we don't get to treat patients who are dead. And that's unfortunate. Um, and it's, it's part of what we have to deal with um, now five years on. But the reality is that Project Dawn, uh, whether it's say 1,500 people or whether it's say 500 people, I mean, the, the stat is it's say 1,500 people. I think it's probably more than that. Um, those are 1,500 people that we got another chance at. And, um, and they are a, they're a stat, but they're a different stat than some of the, the more grim statistics that we're talking about. And those are just the ones that you know of. Exactly, you know, right. I, I mean, 10,000 kits yeah. distributed, the ones who come back and self-report is 1,500. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. So that's a good place to start. I think you know some of the other places that are worthy of discussion are uh, pretty much across the board when you talk about the provider community and you look at what the hospitals have done they all have individually set up systems where they have prescriber education now, uh, that you've got systems to, um, uh, not only to monitor, but re really to educate uh, physicians from their very earliest stages of, of medical education. I think that's really important too. Uh, it's not something that will we'll solve the problem immediately, but over the course of time, I think it's, it's really critical to us being able to work our way through this. 
Um, there are also, I think, there is a lot. There is a lot of lessons to be learned from uh, our community in the way that we have dealt with the uh, the addicted folks in our community. So, um, offering them treatment. You've heard it now several times. I know. Offering them treatment and getting them into recovery is just the first step in what is truly going to be a lifelong struggle. But there are things that we can do as a community to ensure that that path is as straight uh, and is as well paved as possible. So that's by offering the types of services that I think our community has always been in a position to offer, but to really target them at that population of, of folks going through recovery, focusing on transportation, stable housing, um, uh, all the other services that are, are absolutely essential to that person staying on the path to recovery. You know, and that's so important. Um, I, I think the initial focus, certainly on my watch, you know, starting about three years ago, I, I think for most people, most organizations, their focus was let's get them into treatment. Let's get, in, get, right. get them into treatment. And now, increasingly, you're seeing this focus on, you know what, they've got all these hurdles to get back to their life, to rebuild their lives. And some great services yeah. that are evolving to take care of those, such as the one that Tom Olmstead right, exactly at St. Vincent and the legal services yeah. that, that now they're offering. There's certainly no shortage of uh, enthusiasm from the community to help on this. I really do think we're past the point where where anyone needs to be convinced that this is truly a society-wide crisis that we're dealing with. And when you have a crisis of that magnitude, it does take everybody to pitch in. People want to help. Um, I, and, and so so the, the uh, program you're talking about with St. Vincent's, where there's a partnership between legal aid and the hospital, it's a really, uh, really great way of illustrating that there are professions that are in place where they want to help. There are uh, trades and, uh, and and other places where people will be able to find assistance in, in getting job training and skills. It, it, and this is a unique opportunity because uh, I really do feel like the community as a whole has responded to this crisis and have put themselves in a position where they're willing to help in a way that maybe not would have, it wouldn't have been the case 10, 15, 20 years ago. But, but because of the work of this task force, um, our entire community is aware of the scale and the magnitude of this problem. As you look forward, Justin, to the next three to five years for this task force, what do you hope to achieve? You know, it's, I, I think we will benefit from a singular focus on one outcome. And it's, it's um, in some ways, it's, it is the most measurable, uh, um, uh, the, 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 the metric that drives this entire crisis, which is the number of people who have died. Um, I am committed to it. Um, I know the Justice Department as a whole is committed to it, and, and we have many government leaders uh, all the way up to the White House who are committed to seeing the overdose death rate go down. Um, that is my expectation, and we all, I think, will embrace that as a common objective and purpose. We may each come at it and arrive at it in a different way, but if that is our goal and we have a way to measure it, um, in three, five years, I, I, I hope to still be the U.S. Attorney, but if I'm not, I hope that whoever is doing this will be able to stand up there with Dr. Gilson and you will see a dramatic downturn in the number of deaths. Um, it's a very grim way to measure progress. I wish we didn't have to do it that way, but, but that's how we measured our way into this crisis. It's how we're going to have to measure our way out of it, too. On this episode, we've heard from 14 leaders from law enforcement, healthcare, treatment, and recovery who've shared some of their most notable accomplishments over the last five years. And those 14 are just a fraction of the number of people who have contributed to the success of this task force since its inception. Time doesn't permit us to recognize all those who contributed to the accomplishments of this team at this point, but at some point, it will be time to recognize and celebrate, really, all of the accomplishments of the many, many people that have participated in this task force over the years. I'll conclude this podcast with a quote from Justin Herdman. This is an unprecedented public health crisis and an unprecedented law enforcement crisis for our community. We know that every death we learn about is not just a statistic on a chart. It's someone's son or daughter, mother or father 
brother, or sister. Their loss will forever impact that family. Only by working together and constantly striving for comprehensive solutions can we hope to turn the tide on this epidemic and heal our community. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.